At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to New Books in World Affairs, and this is your host, Christian Peterson. And today I have the good fortune of speaking with John Bew about his new book, Realpolitik, A History, which is put out by Oxford University Press. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here today, and before we get going, I was wondering if you could tell the audience a little bit more about your background. Uh, yeah, sure. I'm, uh, I teach um, history and foreign policy, the combination of the two, at the War Studies Department at King's College London, which is uh, quite a unique department that was set up uh, 50 years ago, uh, which studies war, but also peace in its various forms. And we have IR scholars, uh, we have strategic theorists, and also historians like myself in, a, in an interdisciplinary environment. Um, before that, I was a lecturer in modern British history at Cambridge University, and in 2013, I was the Henry Kissinger Chair at the John W. Kluge Center at the Library of Congress. So, um, in a way, my work and my intellectual background uh, straddles both the UK and the US, and I I keep those intellectual links uh, going in my work and, and, and the things I examine. Yeah, it's very it's very interesting. Uh, you remind not we we don't have to get into this necessarily. I, when I, whenever I thought of the Anglo American connection, I've kind of been in the in the realm of Walter Russell Mead's book about uh, I think it's called a God Golden Glory. That's right. And, and yeah, and you, this is another very interesting angle to that story. Uh, but anyways, I was wondering if you could you could tell the audience a little bit more about why you wrote this book. Okay, well, I mean, it also it feeds back into some of the work I was doing previously. So um, while I write on the sort of intersection of diplomacy and international history, I'm actually very interested in the history of ideas, and that's something I was taught at, uh, taught in, in, in Cambridge University. Um, and it's also something I've sort of taken into my work on, on statecraft itself. I think ideas are sometimes an underappreciated ingredient in how we approach the world. Um, now, realpolitik is a word basically kept on popping onto my radar for a number of reasons. The first reason is that I wrote a biography of a former British foreign secretary called Lord Castlereagh, who was a foreign secretary in the early 19th century, in the period in which Britain was fighting against Napoleon and in the resettlement of Europe uh, thereafter. Now, Castlereagh himself is a very influential and interesting figure, and some regard him as the sort of father of diplomatic realism and he had a sort of realistic approach to foreign policy and power and indeed Henry Kissinger in his PhD thesis and subsequent book A World Restored um, focused on Castlereagh as well as Prince Metternich who was Castlereagh's Austrian counterpart so Castlereagh has a sort of had this place in sort of realist approaches to diplomacy and history. And yet my interpretation was actually a little bit different than that. And I stressed his enlightenment credentials and his his ideas, really. And although it's, it's not quite fair to say that Castlereagh was an idealist, he certainly sort of dealt with books and ideas in a way that was underappreciated. He wasn't a kind of a narrow... Uh, Machiavellian practitioner of power politics. So that was one reason why I was sort of, I came to this question with a kind of a, a slight twist on the established uh, story. Um, the second reason, as I say, is realpolitik in public discourse about foreign policy was all over the place in the mid-2000s. Now, the reason for that, both in the UK and the US, was sort of uh, a feeling of exhaustion at the time of the uh, Iraq, Iraqi insurgency, uh, also dif- mounting difficulties in Afghanistan, and, and basically in English-language discussions of foreign policy, people were sort of tired of what they saw as an excess of idealism uh, associated with uh, President Bush and Tony Blair in the UK, and began to 
talk about the need for a return to realpolitik. And I find the word time and time again. And I'd used it myself without really thinking about its origins. But I, I basically, the kind of the historian in me and the intellectual in me, I guess, that I can say without being too uh, presumptuous or self-important, <laughs> basically wanted to interrogate and find out a little bit more about this word, uh, realpolitik. And, and I, in the course of looking at it, I discovered it had a, a pretty interesting and complicated history. Yeah, it does. And before we get into maybe some of the specifics of your argument, I was wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit more. In your introduction, you talk about you're going to take the Cambridge approach to intellectual history or the history of ideas and how you treat them in the book. I was wondering if you could just explain a little more about what that what that means, yeah, how you absolutely. treat ideas in, that, in the book. That's really what sets it up. I mean, the Cambridge approach, um, very simply, if one was to put it in one simple fundamental principle, is that ideas and also the language, the discourse around ideas, need to be understood in their historical context. So certain ideas or thinkers should not be treated as uh, sort of vessels of perennial truth. Um, so we can't just take uh, Kant's ethics out of context. We have to understand it in its time and place. And that's really what I attempt to do with the, the word realpolitik, the original concept, but also the, the discursive, the linguistic uses of it thereafter. Uh, and in doing so, basically show that actually the way we use realpolitik is as important as the meaning of realpolitik itself. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the central figure you use to, to you know, place your book and, and, and advance many of your arguments is a man named, and I'm probably pronouncing this wrong, my pronunciation is, is not the best always, August Ludwig von Rocha. Uh, very close, August Ludwig <laughs> von Rocha. Um, although my pronunciation isn't much better. So if there are German <laughs> scholars on the phone uh, or listening they're to this, they're, right. oh, they're uh, they, they might not like it. Uh, but Ludwig von Rochow, um, uh yes, and he was a, a sort of fascinating discovery for, for me. Um, as I say, you know, realpolitik is littered through the contemporary debate on foreign policy. It's used in op-ed pieces. It's used by politicians, from Gorbachev to Obama. Um, so it's, you know, it's a word we're familiar with. It's also used a lot by academics and theorists of international relations. And yet no one knows anything. Well, I mean, a few people do, but not many people knew much about Ludwig von Rocker, who's the man who cre he, and he's the man who created the word and basically coined the phrase realpolitik, which is kind of what it says on the tin. The sort of German translation is, is real politics. Um, and he created the word in 1853 in pretty um, interesting, unique uh, circumstances. So as I said in the start of the book, realpolitik is not as old as statecraft itself. It doesn't stretch back to the ancient world, to Thucydides or Machiavelli. It's actually a pretty recent creation in the history of ideas. And basically, the first part of the book is to tell the story of what Ludwig von Rockau meant by realpolitik. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting way you, you start off the book the, with the idea of foundations. And what, what struck me reading the book is that he actually, for a man who was not that well-known, I mean, he was read in certain circles quite a bit, but not someone that's on the tip of our tongues today. Like you said, Thucydides, Machiavelli. But he actually had a lot of arguments that have relevance for today, and we'll certainly explore that more. But I was wondering if you could just give the listeners – uh, a basic understanding of what he argued in his in his time and place, what realpolitik. Okay, for, for, I'll, I'll start by 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 explaining a little bit about who he was because that's crucial for understanding what he was arguing. He was a German liberal, a radical, in fact, um, a would-be revolutionary, um, operating in the middle, early and middle part of the uh, 19th century. Um, in fact, he was arrested and imprisoned for his involvement in a radical, uh, pretty botched, disastrous attempt at a rebellion in 1833 um, and was put in, in prison. He tried to kill himself. He escaped to Paris, where, where you had a lot of radical exiles. He spent some time in Italy. Um, he read broadly. Uh, he became a journalist. Um, and basically, he was someone who believed that Germany could be trans, uh, uh, the German sort of states could be transformed into a liberal uh, democratic entity. So, you know, in modern terms, he's not sort of a wild revolutionary, but he was in, in 19th century terms. 
um, and the difficulty he had and his, and his colleagues and comrades has, it had is that Germany was run by essentially princes and autocrats in a series of small states. And he thought a liberal Germany would be a unified Germany, um, which would be run by middle classes on a, on a, on a franchise with rule of law. Uh, and all the things that we sort of take for granted today. So, you know, in, in modern terms, he was a liberal. In the 19th century terms, he was a radical and a revolutionary. Now, what happens in 1848 really is, is a clue to so much modern history, and it's very easy to forget. This. In, 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 in European terms, the 1848 revolutions would spread across Europe, and only England was the exception, and it nearly had a revolution, but not quite. Uh, basically, they were disasters and failures. What happens in nearly every uh, country in 1848 is that liberals and radicals, and the middle classes in particular, try and establish uh, more liberal democratic regimes, but they fail, and they fail for a series of reasons. One is their own vanity. Uh, two is they don't have much uh, power or military force on their uh, behind them, which means that the old regimes can quickly um, uh, sort of... Uh, get on top of them and, and, and suppress them and harass them. And the third reason they fail is because there are other forces in society, such as uh, class hatred, such as peasant, the peasants or uh, suspicion or religion or sectarianism and nationalism, as in the Arab Spring, which kind of eats them all up. And basically, Ludwig von Rockau is trying to make sense of this in 1853. And realpolitik is basically, to really simplify it, is a call for liberals to get real about the world around them. It's not an anti-liberal concept. It's basically a plea to fellow liberals and constitutionalists in Europe that they need to really understand politics if they're ever going to achieve their goals. It's not enough to believe in these liberal values because history does not, does not change by, uh, on, a, on a naturally liberal course. And so realpolitik is get real. Get real, fellow liberals. That's the essence <laughs> of the idea. Yeah, what also struck me about what you what you wrote about it, and I think I couldn't agree with you more about the importance of ideas in history, is the way that he looked at how people have to take ideas seriously and not just kind of pass them off as false consciousness or something that, you know, you can kind of get around, that you have to look at how societies are organized, the equilibrium of society and how ideas play out are something that people have to keep in mind if they want to get anywhere in the world. That's, so that was that's exactly it. Um, and that, if you like, is his original, his most original contribution. I think it's it's the thing that's missed in modern versions of realpolitik, which in my mind focus too narrowly on naked power politics or the politics of force or statecraft or great men sort of series of history. Rocco really appreciated the power of ideas. And just to, to sort of break that down, you know, in getting real about politics, he basically prescribed a number of things that his fellow liberals in particular had to understand. As I say, the first is the, the, the power and force are the defining uh, basic drivers in history. And you can't do anything without power and force. And again, that's kind of a familiar familiar concept. The second concept, again, is sometimes missed, and, and this is the great thing about Rocco, because he's such an eclectic, almost crazy, diverse uh, thinker, and he, he throws everything into the mix. So he has a bit of liberalism, he uses a bit of conservatism, he also uses a bit of Marxism, even though he's not a Marxist. And he says, look, well, here's what Marxists tell us. Marxists tell us that the class basis of society is really important for historical change. And again, it's something that maybe we've forgotten about a little bit. Um, but as you say, the final real key aspect of his argument, and why I think he really casts out and has something to, to say today, is that he says, you know, ideas really do matter in history. And he says some ideas are less important than others. What The most important ideas are the ones that attach themselves to either power or social force. So uh, these are not sort of, you know, um, you know, just, just things in the air, castles in the sky, to use a rock art phrase. Um, they are... They are powerful social forces, and in fact, he says the zeitgeist, so the spirit of the times, to use that German phrase, is the single most important factor in um, any sort of political situation. I think that really adds something that's it's kind of it's missing from Machiavelli. It's not Machiavelli's fault, but it means that Rocco is actually quite useful in the modern democratic age to tell us about the nature of politics. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very important, and... 
as most people who write things, whether they're Karl Marx or whoever, they always somehow get corrupted by people that come after, at least in their minds. And obviously you can make a case, as you do, that there actually are, in many ways, not the lessons aren't totally internalized. So how do other people in Germany, I guess would be the, or not Germany, when after, well, Germany's not created until 1871, but German thinkers begin to uh, not exactly get what he's, uh, Rocco's trying to say in his arguments, and they corrupt his his understanding of real politics. Exactly. Um, but it's, it's a two-part process. I mean, the first thing to say, you know, as you can hear from the word, it's a really kind of, it's a vivid, evocative word, and it doesn't need too much translation or too much explanation. You know, we hear realpolitik. We all kind of, I used to ask my students in class, you know, what do you think when you hear realpolitik? And they think of armies and uh, Bismarck or strong men or, you know, ruthless politics. Um, so, you know, the word itself contains the seeds of a kind of what I call degenerate, de degeneration. It has a degenerative quality to it. Um, people can pick up realpolitik and use it as they want. I mean, in fact, you know, people around Hitler use it. So like, I, I said that's pretty inaccurate. The second thing that happens is that Rockar himself partly facilitates the way in which his word gets perverted. As I say, he's an impeccable liberal for most of his life. But like many German liberals, he starts basically to become more of a nationalist than a liberal because Many German liberals think that nationalism and liberalism comes together. The question is, which comes first? And of course, with nationalism in Germany, there are more conservative figures. There are more reactionary figures who use it to their own ends. And Rocco basically is one of those liberals who basically they're prepared to allow Otto von Bismarck, the uh, Prussian um, uh, first minister and essentially the man who unifies Germany, who's very conservative, who's not a liberal, they're basically they're prepared to allow him the benefit of the doubt in the first instance. Mm -hmm. to, to, so if, if, if Bismarck unifies Germany by what he calls blood and iron, that these liberals will basically call a ceasefire against him and let him unify Germany because they think the liberalism will win the day ultimately in a unified Germany. And that's not what happens. So by an odd twist of fate, although Bismarck never uses the word, Realpolitik becomes associated with his sort of ruthless brand of blood and iron uh, power politics. And it starts to be picked up by other German thinkers after, afterwards. And as German nationalism gets more and more extreme in the la later part of the 19th century, up to the First World War, basically realpolitik becomes a sort of catch-all phrase. Um, you know, all the liberal, so the liberal heritage is forgotten. It's used to apply to German foreign policy. It sort of, as I say, means ruthless power politics. And the sort of subtleties are, are, are slightly washed away, are very much washed away, actually, uh, by the time of the First World War. Um, so as I say, it gets perverted, it becomes degenerated. Uh, but actually, in an odd type of way, you know, Rockeye himself is partly to blame for that by casting his lot in with Bismarck. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, there's there's great stuff on other than on German thinkers uh, how they how they understood the term and really took on a strong nationalist bent. Uh, I'm always interested in reading about him. I'm, I'm going to butcher his name as I as I do. Uh, Heinrich von Duntrechka. Trechka, yeah. Trechka, yeah. That's a very interesting part of the book. His 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 use of the or relationship with the concept and German power. Exactly. I mean, Trechka is a crucial crucial figure that's often kind of missed in you know histories of international relations because he's such a controversial figure and with such sort of repugnant uh, repugnant views in our, in our modern context. I mean, Trotsky again, like Rockar, starts his career as a liberal, but he becomes basically the cheerleader for German nationalism. And he takes the concept of realpolitik, which he loves. I mean, he reads the original, and he perverts it more than anyone else. He becomes the best-selling historian in Germany. Um, he was regarded by some as a prophet of Nazism, so the Nazi party lionize him. He takes realpolitik in a very racial and a very anti-Semitic direction. And here is a real genuine perversion because Rockar himself was not an anti-Semite. And in fact, he said anti-Semitism 
was anti-realpolitik because it was irrational, because it was based on silly prejudices and suspicions. Trutska forgets that caveat. He, he, he basically ignores the health warning and he takes it in this extreme racial, uh, almost biological uh, nationalism more than anyone else. And by the way, he's a brilliant writer and in many ways a great thinker, which, which means you know, his influence is, is, is huge. But you know, of, of the most mendacious and evil inclinations, really, which explain a lot of uh, the course of German history thereafter. So Realpolitik becomes sort of embedded in what people regard as a kind of the special path that Germany takes, the Sonderweg, to use a German word. And of course, that's not a special yeah. path. That's a, it's a disastrous, dark uh, uh, path <laughs> and, uh, it, uh, along the road towards Nazism. It's funny that I just mentioned that uh, I was, uh, yesterday I was uh, at a conference at my school and we had a bunch of professors visiting from Germany and they were asking me history questions. And one of the professors just went off on this tirade about Wilhelm II and German foreign policy in the late 1800s oh, yeah. and called him, what a stupid, stupid man. He just, he just went off. That's but, all uh, right. Anyway, I, I, yeah, he's right. I was just thinking about your book when he was going off. But uh, what, what, what happens is in, when, when, as you advance the book, you get into part two, you talk about how these debates about realpolitik play out in the the English world, so to speak, uh, Great Britain and the United States. And I was wondering if you could just uh, say a little bit more about how the, the term realpolitik enters and shapes debates within uh, Great Britain about foreign policy. Absolutely. Um, I mean, while I've got enough sort of German to, to, to get by for the, you know, the early stages, really the book, the essence of the book is about the English language history of this word. And that's what I'm really interested in and, and, and sort of you know, uh, part two to five is really about that English language history. And realpolitik seeps into the English language um, in, in sort of distinct waves and different ways. The first way it seeps into the English language is in England. And in England, of course, which reigns supreme, which is the dominant superpower of the late 19th century, much as America is at the end of the 20th century and, you know, arguably still is today. You know, Britain is the most dominant and therefore looks at new rivals and enemies with a feeling of trepidation and fear. And for many years, there was kind of a very pro-German uh, mood in Britain and people, you know, they shared uh, the Protestant religion, for example. They shared a, uh, a taste for philosophy and uh, classical music and opera and all these things. And Germany, Germany was regarded as very highly cultured. As Germany becomes more aggressive and assertive on the international stage and starts to challenge Britain's predominance, well, basically people in England are thinking, well, what's going on here? And they start, because a lot of them speak German, they start to read the German newspapers, they start to read Tritschke, they, they miss Rockard, but they start to read uh, what Bismarck has said, they start to read what uh, the Kaiser says, and they discover this word realpolitik, which by which stage in the 1890s through to 1914 really, it's already been perverted, it's already being applied to all these dastardly things that the Germans are supposed to do. Um, so basically, realpolitik comes in the English language in England as a dirty word, something to be feared, um, something that the Germans do, essentially. And that's the kind of first big wave of, uh, of sort of English language realpolitik. The second is to talk about basically how realpolitik seeps into America. And while there are a lot of similarities because of the shared language between England and the United States, there's a fundamental difference here because it's never in America regarded with such fear. Germany's further away, um, America's newer to the foreign policy game, and in fact, there are many people in America right from the start who are more willing to say, you know what, we need a bit of realpolitik here. And it's not a Germanic form of realpolitik, we don't want to copy the Germans, but you know, basically we need a bit of realism in our foreign policy. So from the moment that Americans start using it, they basically, they take out the German connotations and they use it in a different way. They use it in a way of saying, you know, we need to think like other European nations do about foreign policy. We need to be, you know, um, rough and tough on the international stage. So it's, 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 um, it works both ways. Yeah, you've got some interesting arguments about uh, Walter Lippmann's relationship with uh, with the concept and how the kind of the rocks that Americans dealt with as they tried to, you know, look at liberal internationalism versus more realistic, and I'll put that in quotes, views of international relations that are quite interesting. 
And another thing that struck me about this part of the book is this idea of hypocrisy. <laughs> I love, the, I love the, the issue of hypocrisy. And what caught my attention is the George Bernard Shaw uh, going after the British uh, for being a little tough on the Germans, giving their behavior in international relations. And I was wondering if you could say a bit more about this idea that uh, the debates about whether the Germans were just being more honest than the British about how they wanted to shape the you world. You know what? I mean, George Bernard Shaw is right. And I, I say this as a defender of Britain and America. Most of the things they do around the world, I don't think they're the worst, put it that way. But, you know, on that sure. fundamental point, yes, yes. Hypocrisy is the <laughs> essence of it. The English, particularly in the 19th century, hugely hypocritical. So what the Germans say is, well, what's international law? International law is a, is a thing that's created by the British because they were the pirates first. They had the biggest navy. They got, they got to all the islands first. They dominated everything. They create a world economic system in their image. And as soon as someone else comes along, they say, you're breaking the law. They, they have this huge empire in India and elsewhere. Um, and then as soon as the Germans wanted an empire in Africa, the British say, you can't do that. What about the poor African people? There's nothing more frustrating and infuriating um, to, to, to the Germans in this sort of British cant and hypocrisy. You know, it's in everything they do. And that kind of, it's, it's the most sort of shocking thing to the Germans and the most infuriating things to the Germans. And it's very similar to what a lot of people say about the United States today. You know, they say, well, yeah. you know, what's the UN? It's printed in your image. What's international law? Well, it serves you. Um, you know, the whole world economic system um, is basically, you know, crafted out of American dominance under the Second World War. And, you know, and both of us, the Brits in the late 19th century and the Americans of the 20th century, are always a bit taken aback. I say, well, we're not hypocritical. We're good guys. What do you mean? And basically what I, I kind of argue in the book is, is, is that, you know, yes, we're hypocritical, but actually if you break it down, then um, we're hypocritical, but it's okay to be hypocritical because our hypocrisy is, um, you know, less aggressive. It's more self-deluding. It's a softer form of hypocrisy and aggression than many other nations. So, you know, yes, they, yes, we can be hypocrites. It's okay, guys. That's kind of an ess the essence of the conclusion. Yes, I want to come. I want to come back to that when we we talk about contemporary events. But it's a very it's a very interesting part of your book, and I, I enjoyed reading it quite a bit. And what happens is, you know, as you know, you go from part two to part three and look at the impact of World War One and the interwar years and how the idea of realpolitik plays out on both sides of the ocean and to some degree within within Germany itself with uh, the term, uh, how essentially its relationship with fascism and the relationship of Neville Chamberlain to the concept of appeasement. So I was wondering if you'd say a little bit more about how the idea of realpolitik plays itself out during the interwar Absolutely. years. Absolutely. I mean, the first thing to understand about the interwar years is basically how difficult the political situation is, uh, particularly for Britain. It's a simple point, but it's, it's too easy to forget that, you know, Britain essentially has had this pretty easy century of dominance in the 19th century. And after the First World War, it's, it's broke. It's struggling, it's less powerful, it has all sorts of internal difficulties. And then along comes Germany, Japan and Italy who basically want to rip up the international status quo, which gives Britain more foreign policy dilemmas than it's ever had before. Again, you can see this repeating itself very much in, in American history, uh, almost right now, uh, with thing, you know, things like the rise of China, etc., etc. So basically Britain's in a panic, and for the first time, Neville Chamberlain, basically starts to adopt realpolitik. So realpolitik, which has been a dirty word, suddenly, for the first time in British history, becomes something that actually, you know what, we might need a little bit of realpolitik to deal with this situation. Um, we might, for example, you know, have to talk to Hitler, you know, in what becomes appeasement, or try and peel Mussolini away from Hitler. Uh, to perhaps, you know, do an ugly deal with some fascist powers, but one that kind of protects us. And Neville Chamberlain is sort of the father of appeasement and the, and the person that most associated with the basic, the failure of British foreign policy in the 1930s, uses the word very explicitly. So oddly, it comes back in and it becomes associated with, with British policy. You know, get away from our 19th century superiority, get down and dirty and play diplomacy. Um, so oddly, as I say, it comes, comes into fashion for the first time in Britain, okay, but never again, because, of course, appeasement is such a disaster 
that when the whole thing collapses and Britain's at war in 1939, it's thrown back at Chamberlain by the opposition, by Churchill and others, and said, this is what your realpolitik got us. Yeah, it's it's absolutely uh, not the best uh, company to have when you're trying to if you're trying to defend an idea. And what also I found interesting uh, in that in that section is the uh, <laughs> the way that a lot of uh, German thinkers and, and other thinkers are trying to figure out if Realpolitik has any relationship to Nazism or the fascist phenomenon in general. And you introduce a word. Well, I mean, you, you, you introduced it earlier, but you also talk about this idea of mocked politique being more in tune with what's going on as opposed to real politique. Yeah. I was wondering if you say a little exactly. bit more about that. Exactly. I mean, there, so there are some people in Germany who say, you know, what went wrong in 1914? Why did we lose the First World War? And they say, well, was it our, was it our real politique or was it because our real politique got twisted and confused with other things. And um, so there's some, I say, there's some people in Germany who are making the case that, um, you know, realpolitik is not the worst thing in the world and we might bring it back. Um, however, the Nazis actually don't like it and they don't use it um, because, they, as I said, they believe in macro politics, the politics is forced. They don't believe in this idea of, um, you know, compromise and doing deals here and there. They believe in, in racial superiority. They believe in historical mission. You know, forget the sort of details of diplomacy. We're about power and a destiny. So, you know, realpolitik yeah. doesn't really apply to Nazism. And that's the mistake that Chamberlain makes because he says, you know, we have to deal with the Germans in the spirit of realpolitik. And you flip it back over and you say, well, what are the Germans saying? And they're saying, well, we're not realpolitik. We don't even buy realpolitik. Fascism isn't realpolitik. It's a perversion of realpolitik. So, you know, Chamberlain's prescription for the 1930s is therefore inherently wrong. And a few writers get it. A few writers understand the nature of Nazism, the nature of fascism early, which, of course, is the complete opposite of what, you know, realpolitik should be. Yeah, absolutely. And another interesting part of this this section, and I found it uh, important to reiterate, um, in terms of how the the, the debates about uh, the interwar years, it was not some big long debate between one side being completely realistic people or realists, or the other side being idealists. That it's a much more multifaceted and complex debate than just idealists went for appeasement and realists were like appeasement's bad. It's, no, 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 it's absolutely much not. Yeah. The, the it's, it's kind of forgotten about, and, and there's, there's a, you know, uh, in international relations theory, we tend to think of the realist versus the idealist in every moment in time. That just does not capture what's going on in the 1930s in America and Britain or anywhere else. And in fact, um, the historian uh, Paul Kennedy, who's really the doyen of this, um, he makes a very interesting argument. Is actually that. You know, the idealists and the realists converge in 1938, 1939 in Britain, and they kick out the appeasers. So Churchill, in many ways, is kind of an example of someone who can be a realist and idealist at the same time. But someone who says appeasement's wrong, who says, you know, he believes in the superiority of the British Empire and British ways and all these sort of controversial things. But he also understands, you know, that Hitler only understands force. So, you know, the two can exist side by side. And it's kind of a false dichotomy to say, well, here are the realists and yeah. here are the idealists. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's kind of a, yeah, a kind of caution against that. Yeah, that's what I was taught in high school. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you pointed help. that out. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and when you move on to part four, you, I mean, the, the, the interesting pages keep coming. You deal with the issue of, uh, one of the issues that you deal with is how, the idea of realpolitik plays it out, plays itself out in post-war America, and you look at people like Reinhold Niebuhr, Kennan, Hans Morgenthau is a big part of, of your book, and I was wondering if you could just tell us the main findings you have about how this issue plays out in post-war America. Absolutely. I mean, this is kind of like another a sub-history of the term itself. And the key thing about all those figures you just mentioned, from Kennan and Niebuhr and Morgenthau, all these sort of famous realist thinkers, is that they were all either of German origin or mm -hmm. they spoke German fluently. 
and were entirely versed in a lot of the thinkers and the individuals I've mentioned already um, uh, previously. So there was a real kind of a, a German influence in the American Academy, but also in the, you know, the policy-making world. And one could take the example of Henry Kissinger uh, in that uh, in himself. So you know, this sort of German influence on America's understanding of what it was to be a superpower in 1945. You know, there's a basically there's a learning process. You know, how are we going to approach the world? Uh, do we do it from an idealist perspective or a realist perspective? And basically, I show that a number of, of the sort of the German scholars of history, but also international relations, basically sort of, you know, they, they, they revamp realpolitik for an American, for American uh, audience. Um, but I do say, I mean, I don't say that they kind of, um, they, they sort of, attempt to subvert American political culture. Some people accuse them of kind of bringing in foreign methods, etc. Actually, the, the, the version of realpolitik or realism is utterly Americanized, in my view, in the, in the, the 40s mm-hmm. and the 50s. Yeah, I, I think you make a strong case for that. And another thing I found interesting about this section is you talk about, uh, <laughs> I write about the, the, the Bismarck. Every, every, uh, there was a big time when everyone was trying to figure out the, the, the image of Bismarck in American intellectual history and his relationship with realpolitik. And you mentioned uh, A.J. P. Taylor's uh, biography of Bismarck. And I had to read that book when I was taking an undergraduate class from a historian named Henry Turner. And I remember the book very well. And you you use it in part, at least as, as I read your book, to talk about the ideas still matter, that Bismarck is not some genius that Americans can go to, that actually ideas matter, and you have to understand Bismarck as a, as a product of his time rather than some eternal fountain of knowledge of how to navigate the shoals of international relations. So I was wondering if you could say a bit more about, uh, well, G. Taylor, if you want to, but the image of Bismarck and the debates that people had about him in the uh, post-war America. Absolutely. I mean, the, the simple lesson of this, you know, so it's a kind of a later chapter and people said, you know, why are you talking about Bismarck again? And the reason is that, you know, history matters. History matters, the policy and the way we approach the world. And it matters, it sort of percolates down or trickles down from these historical debates um, because, you know, the statesmen and stateswomen who are in control of our foreign policy have learned things at university and they learn a certain approach to the world. And what AJP Taylor says, he's basically got an eye on Morgan Thau and he's got an eye on others and he's, and he's worried that America is basically going to revive a kind of a cult of Bismarck. That, that people are going to say, you know, Bismarck actually, you know, he knew what he was doing. He was a pretty smart guy. Uh, he's a good model for America. And Taylor says, no, you're wrong because Bismarck swallows himself. Bismarck destroys his own, uh, his own sort of uh, policy. The Kaiser takes it in a crazy way. This is a dangerous thing. But what's really incredible for me is, is the extent to which, you know, policymakers were engaged in, in this debate. In fact, you know, one of the smartest contributions to this is from Henry Kissinger himself, um, you know, in his book, Diplomacy, when he discusses uh, Bismarck at great lengths. So, you know, I say, this matters at a policy level. That's the kind of simple point of that historical argument about what went wrong in the past, what worked and what didn't, really do translate into American foreign policy. Yeah, it's an interesting moment in the book, and it's, I don't want to pretend it's, I, I wish for things to be different than they were. I do in many ways, but what struck me about that in those debates is how people seem to be plugged into them, much more policy relevant than the debates academics sometimes have today. Because sometimes I, I read what politicians write and say, and I see no sense that they've engaged in these intellectual debates that seem to have been more important back in the 40s and 50s and even into the 60s. Yeah. So I think that's an issue. Just to comment on that, I mean, I think it, it, it works both ways in an odd type of way. Yes, we would like politicians to read more history and have more depth to what their, their sort of approach to the world is, and I think that's a serious problem that they don't. On the flip side, I would also say that the blame can be placed partly at the door of academics who increasingly are detached from policy and regard, you know, engaging in policy debates as a little bit crass or crude or something they shouldn't be doing because they're great thinkers. So I say, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fault that lies, you know, basically across, across the divide. And in fact, it's up to us, the academics, to, to, to get out there and, and try and make more of our, more of our case. Yeah, that's that's a pivotal point. Well, that's well taken. I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. And 
there also seems to be an, an argument by some that I encounter that, you know, these people are too stupid to understand our amazing writings, <laughs> um, which I think is sad because if you want to change the world, you have to, you know, put in ways that people can, you know, read and grapple with and then get something out of rather than being so complex that they can't understand. Completely agree. But, but, but anyways, uh, I mean, as you move from part part four to part five of the book, I mean, you, you talk about the evolution of, of realpolitik and how it plays out in intellectual debates. And what I found interesting about this section was the debate between so-called realists in American foreign policy and, and the new left. Like, I, I, I found interesting the part between debates about the Vietnam War between uh, Marcuse, uh, the, the, the new left uh, godlike figure, Herbert, Mark, or Mark Hughes, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name That's correct. Right, yeah. yeah, and Irving, right. Irving Crystal about uh, how people took the idea that American, the war in Vietnam, how it played out this idea that America needed to have a more realistic foreign policy. I was wondering if you'd say a bit more about yeah, that. Yeah, you have this. They have this odd thing in uh, in Vietnam. Vietnam War is so so huge in so many ways. Um, you know, so important to the American political. Psyche, and that really, you know, writing the book, you know, reconfirmed that to me in, in so many ways. Uh, and, and as I, I create these sort of these cleavages and divisions in the academy and, and the policy-making world, which we're still dealing with today. The thing about the Vietnam War is that, you know, as I say, it's opposed by most of the realist thinkers. They don't like it. They don't support it. They think it's reckless. They think it's a, mis uh, a mistake. Uh, and a lot of the realist thinkers traditionally are regarded as more conservative because they appreciate power politics. They're not idealist about the world. They're, they're kind of uh, pessimistic about the world, and that's seen as a conservative trait. And yet, because of the criticism of the Vietnam War from them, they end up meeting in the middle with the new left figures, the anti-Vietnam War protesters, the student radicals. They say, you know what, we, support, we oppose the Vietnam War too. So you have this odd marriage of these kind of quite stuffy, realist academic thinkers and then the kind of new left guys who say this is a disaster, we morally oppose it. Uh, and it's a kind of an odd, odd, odd sort of segue in the story. And then finally you have a kind of a third strand, which is the, you know, the emergence of a kind of a neoconservative position, which is that, you know, you basically, both of these guys are wrong. And the very fact they're hanging out tells you everything you need to know about this position. And in fact, Irving Crystal calls realism as a kind of a, a political theory, uh, as, a, as a crisis of the governing class in America, in the face <laughs> of imperial destiny. That's a very evocative phrase. Yeah, I also like the quote you brought. I think it's by Crystal when he writes that intellectuals are never happy with a country's foreign policy and they never will be, or, or something, something like that. Um, I mean, whatever you say about you know neoconservatism, and that's a, a, a maybe a bit for a different day. Irving Crystal's essay yeah. on the in essay on intellectuals <laughs> and foreign policy, uh, written in 1970, I think, is such a powerful critique that I get all my students to read it. It shows you the kind of limits and the dangers of, of intellectuals pontificating about foreign policy. <laughs> Interesting. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I've got to I've got to check that out more uh, more in depth. But what, what, what a lot of a lot of these issues seem to boil down to, in my mind, as you as you move from part four into part five, is Americans and the British, by, by extension, or the English, uh, trying to figure out where this meeting line is between being realistic and promoting uh, the power of ideas. And is that what it boils down to? Is it, is it simply uh, a debate about people are trying to figure out how to make the world better by advancing specific ideas and doing that in a, in a realistic way? Or, or I guess my question is, is this, is this what it just boils down to at the end of the day? Policymakers have to find a balance between ideas and practical reality. That's really, that really is the essence of it. And I, I don't profess to offer any answer. That is the dialogue. And basically, I kind of slightly despair with people who try to find some sort of uh, neat formula which balances the two. People talk about liberal realism or, you know, uh, basically variations on that. Um, you know, I'm both realistic, but I'm idealistic. We often hear politicians say, uh, <laughs> oh, we veer from one to the other. It's a kind of a constant attempt to, to sort of, you know, start, find the middle of the center of gravity on a wobble board. And 
it <laughs> just doesn't exist. That formula does not exist. Um, you know, the process should be one of calibration and analysis of problems. Um, you know, as they as they come along, or or with a broader strategy. But to, you know, to, to attempt to find some sort of theology of how we look at the world world is, is I think, a mistaken one. And that's really my, my sort of I end up on on President Obama, and I don't sort of get into great detail about you know. Uh, whether he's right or wrong in foreign policy, but I say his sort of attempt to find a theology about the world, a kind of a liberal realist approach. He looks at Niebuhr, he brings in uh, Thomas Aquinas in Just War, his Nobel Peace Prize speech is utterly elegant. Uh, more recently, his 20,000 word, um, you know, the, the, the book on, uh, so the, the article on him in the Atlantic called The Obama Doctrine is all inflected with nuance and subtlety and reflection. But it's a theology and only that. It's not actually necessarily a foreign policy approach. And basically I argue that it's for statesmen not to sort of give us, find the center of gravity on the wobble board. It's for statesmen to get on with foreign policy and maybe shut up a little bit. <laughs> Fair enough. So if I take what you're, you're saying as, uh, as your view, would we all benefit from reading Henry Kissinger a little bit? I mean, I just got done with Greg Grandin's book about uh, Kissinger. And you, you touch on Kissinger quite a bit in his relationship with realpolitik, but you know, at some level, Kissinger was of this idea that, you know, at the end of the day, you can have all these ideas, and ideas are important, but you have to get down to the nuts and bolts of creating a peaceful world. I mean, what do you take from what you have in your book and just your reading or readings in general about Henry Kissinger and his place in the debate about realpolitik? Okay, here's the thing on that. I mean, I would say I was kind of a, a, a neo-Kissingerian or that he is the hero of the book. I think that would be the wrong way of looking at it, actually. Um, I would say that to take anything from Henry Kissinger, I would deploy the same approach that historians attempted to do when looking at Bismarck, which is if you're going to look at these figures of these individuals and their ideas about the world, to do it properly and deeply. So not to sort of pick up a kind of what, uh, you know, Kissinger 101 approach to the world, which is, oh, I, I don't know, you know, a bit of uh, a bit of realism, a bit of ruthlessness, you know, let's not be sentimental about things. It's actually to read properly and deeply into what they what they think uh, and the sort of complexity. And, and, and Kissinger's whole, you know, intellectual output is about the, wrestle, the need to wrestle with uh, complexity, you know, set aside the controversies over Vietnam and Cambodia, just put them aside for one moment. I'm not saying that they're not important, but look at, for example, what Kissinger says about Bismarck. Kissinger's one of the guys who says, you know what? We should not have a cult of Bismarck. It's a mistake because Bismarck created a system that, that, that killed itself. It was not a sustainable system. He's actually a really smart critic of Bismarck, which puts him on the kind of AJP Taylor side of things. So I think, you know, Kissinger would say, well, rather than, you know, copy me, do everything I do, you know, look critically, see the mistakes I made. Um, you know, put me in historical context. I think that's the kind of the spirit of the book, really, is to, is to go back again to these problems and think, you know, mischievously, counterintuitively, and, and try and dig down as far as possible. Yeah, that's, I think that's good advice, and that's what I, that's what I took from your book as well. But, it, it, I mean, you raise a bunch of issues that, I, I mean, we don't have time to, to go over them in detail, but you, you trace the story right up to the present day. I mean, you look at the Nixon administration, and you have an, uh, a nice section about how uh, Nixon himself drew a lot of inspiration for what he did from British foreign policy, the lessons of British foreign policy, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, uh, Bush number one, Clinton, Bush number two. I was wondering if you could just give a, the, the listeners a synopsis of what your findings were about how this idea of realpolitik played out during the 70s, 80s, and 90s into, into today. I mean, really the essence of that, that latter section is that the word is used a hell of a lot. It's probably used most aptly when it comes to Kissinger and Nixon because they thought you know, deeply about the origins of the word. Well, particularly Kissinger from the German origins. Nixon, again, was kind of such a huge fan of uh, uh, Churchill and, and very interested in, in sort of British uh, grand strategy in the 19th century. And, and then I think what happens in American foreign policy, and this is not a criticism of anyone who comes after, but it basically becomes increasingly like a, a, a rapid, aggressive pendulum swing. And, and I basically show that the word realpolitik is basically used as a kind of a, either as a slur or kind of a, a, an appellation of sophistication, but it's, it basically reflects the pendulum swing in U.S. foreign policy. You know, 
for realpolitik, anti-realpolitik. It's time for some realpolitik. Go, go back to, you know, go back again to anti-realpolitik. This happens time and time again. And I basically, you know, I kind of I show how the word waxes and wanes in the discourse, but actually loses increasingly uh, a, a bit of meaning. So hence, I, I, my conclusion is basically, well, let's go back and discover the original word because we, we, we use a lot of language in foreign policy without really thinking what it means. Yeah, I, a lot of my publications are on Carter foreign policy, and he definitely used it uh, in a sense that real politic was Henry Kissinger. <laughs> that, that's what he that's exactly. what he thought of when he when he when he used the term. And at the at the end of the day, you you say this in the conclusion and uh, the introduction of your book that the image of realpolitik or realism in general in American foreign policy is coming back into vogue because of the wars in Afghanistan, the debacle in Iraq. And I think this might be a good time to go over what lessons does your book have and your readings of all of all these great thinkers. What lessons do you draw about uh, the history of realpolitik that have relevance today for foreign policy? Okay, uh, okay. Two, two straight up. Uh, number one, avoid kind of cultish approaches to foreign policy, which either hero worship people from the past, whether it be Machiavelli or Bismarck or even Kissinger. That's a dangerous thing, you know, lifting approaches from the past, you know, too aggressively or uncritically um, into the present. Second thing, avoid the pendulum swings that come with foreign policy, you know, from one to the other. Um, it's a natural inclination, particularly because of the, the, the American democratic cycle, um, you know, the primary system as well, all the four-year terms, all these things, you know, avoid pendulum swings where possible. That would be my sort of second piece of advice. And then, you know, those are kind of, you know, intuitive, basic, but, you know, go back to the original, you know, principles of realpolitik. So deal with foreign policy problems without seeing, you know, either kind of a, a moral story or something on a kind of a treadmill of history, but actually dealing with problems as, as they appear to you before your eyes. So, you know, what are the socioeconomic conditions that are underlying, underlying something? You know, what are the ideas that are in the ether at that moment in time and what ideas are more important than other ideas? Um, you know, who holds power in any given situation? All these things are kind of critical, crucial things. Like, a part of me thinks we've slightly lost the art of analysis and decision-making when it comes to foreign policy, and I kind of end up a little bit with a, a sort of discussion on the, on the Arab Spring, which is to say, you know, Ludwig von Rockau, having, having been in, in Europe's Arab Spring in the mid-19th century, would have understood what's going on here. Power, peasants religion, nationalism, ethnicity, um, jealousy, um, you know, rapid changes of, of ideas, big ideas, small ideas, bad ideas, good ideas, all these things are in the mix, and yet we kind of, we approach the Irish Spring as either a morality tale or something to be feared, uh, and we presumed it would work out a certain way in our preconceived notions of history. You know, if Ludwig von Rocco was around, he would have looked at the situation immediately and worked it out pretty swiftly. So we can, you know, we don't, we needn't go back to these old texts, but we can rediscover a sort of spirit of a way of thinking about problems, which is critical, not fatalistic, not cult, uh, cultish. Um, but you know, it throws a bit of skepticism uh, and pessimism into the mix without completely succumbing to it. Yeah, it's very interesting. And another thing that caught my attention in your conclusion, and I couldn't agree with it more, I just, I remember reading it going, yes, well done, sir, uh, is when you talk about the history of ideas and how people need to take those more seriously and factor them into foreign policymaking, you talk about it wouldn't hurt policymakers or it wouldn't hurt people in general to get a better grasp of the world is to read more literature, to read books about various uh, countries and places beyond just knowing the politics and economics, to look at and to get a better feel for the culture and the sway of ideas by reading novels and, and, you know, essays and maybe even look at art. I don't know. But I think that's a very interesting part of, of, of your recommendations is to get people more in tune with how other cultures actually uh, function. I, I think it's very, very sage it's advice. Part, it's partly, thank you. It's partly, the, the part of the point is to say, you know, precisely as you said, to understand how other cultures work and, and, and to, you know, understand the sort of the, the things that the beating heart of other places in the world and other religions and other mm -hmm. communities, that's, that's part of it. Um, the other part is that, you know, literature and things outside, say, IR theory or, um, you know, basically systematic approaches to the world just show you the places in between. 
I, I think sometimes we kind of forget about the places in between. Um, you know, the, the things that really, you know, characterize life like egotism and fanaticism and uh, jealousy and and uh, accidents of history and, and, and you, you know, sort of uh, moments and, and all these type of things. I think sometimes we kind of we forget the, the unquantifiable uh, aspects of, of foreign policy and aspects of, of life, really. And that's really, it's really kind of a, 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 a plea for um, educational um, ecumenicism. That's how I would describe it. Yeah, that's, that's very important. And I don't know how many times I've, something like this has happened in class where I will say something like, why does uh, Al-Qaeda or Osama bin Laden, why did he hate the United States? Why did he do this? And the answer that almost always comes is because he's nuts, <laughs> because he's crazy. Right. Uh, they had no idea of what he actually wrote, what he actually said, what he did, how he justified what he did. And I, I made this, I just, I mean, I don't want to take too much of your time, but I basically told the class about how he justified attacking American civilians because he took seriously the argument that the United States was a country based on popular sovereignty. And if the government yeah. represents the will of the people, then they basically presumably uh, approve of the U.S. government's, uh, uh, in his mind, you know, war crimes in the Middle East. So they should be held accountable. And when I said this to the students, they didn't know how to respond at all to, the, to, this, to this argument. And they would be in better position if they took ideas seriously, read more, and got in to try to figure out, not that they have to agree with it, but had a better feel for what animates people to do what they do. So I think... Yeah, look, I mean, you know, you break the... I, I know exactly sort of the arguments that Bin Laden was making. It's a, it's a really interesting point. If you, if you break it all down, I mean, my, here's my response to what you say. Um, you know, I, I, first of all, I, you know, I, I agree that, you know, we can't hurt to, to know a little bit more about other people's justification and, and sort of political uh, mindset as well. You know, I would still say that, you know, we should have confidence in our own moral values. We needn't be relativistic about it. And, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a real believer in that. But that doesn't mean, you know, history is a morality tale and the world's a morality tale. It isn't. Um, so I think those two things can be, you know, we can, we can have those, we can have our cake and eat it, if you like. We can say, like, we, we do have faith in our values. We do have um, faith that kind of a liberal approach to the world is by and large better for, not only for us and other people. But, you know, that doesn't mean we, we don't appreciate that other things drive history and other things drive other people. And I think somewhere in between is, 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 a, is a kind of relatively sane approach to the world. Yeah, that's well said. And I couldn't agree more with what, what you just, what you just uh, commented. And it raises the issue, I think, to, to conclude. Uh, and once again, thanks for taking so much time with me. Is you generally, if I read you correctly, that you think that Anglo-American foreign policy, even for all its hypocrisy, has been more successful than generally uh, its critics give it credit for? Yeah, I mean... And I was wondering, you could say a little bit Absolutely. more. Absolutely. I mean, we, we kind of rail against ourselves, and we're always in a moral panic and a, and a strategic panic that we're getting everything wrong. You know, I'm sitting here in, in North London. Uh, you know, things look okay here. Um, you know, basically, we have certain advantages, Britain and America, relative security, geopolitically, again, again. But, you know, these are, these are two nations that are... Uh, not only kind of bound together quite closely, who knows if that will change in the future, but, you know, two, two nations that have survived a number of, of threats and actually, you know, got rich and helped themselves to a lot of resources in the world um, and are not in sort of immediate catastrophic danger. There have been moments when, you know, British foreign policy almost led to that disaster. But by and large, we're not, we're not too far off. So we needn't sort of reform ourselves, um, you know, or transform ourselves. You know, it's just about thinking subtly and calmly about what we do right and what we've, did, what we've done wrong in the past. Um, you know, and, and a lot of our foreign policy debates have, have the luxury of being, you know, about choice rather than necessity. Um, so in that sense, we must be doing something right. Yeah, and it's an interesting point that you raise. I, I can't remember who wrote it, but I, I just um, got emailed the recent issue of foreign policy, and one of the lead articles is about how Britain and the America or the United States are drifting apart, and has a picture of Cameron and Obama looking at each other menacingly. Yeah. I think it's, but uh, I think that's probably overstated. So, any, anyways, once again, thank you for speaking with me. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure uh, to discuss this book with you. But before we go. I was wondering if you could say a bit more, more about what your future plans are. Uh, well, listen, first of all, thank you for reading it 
so closely and it's always a pleasure to talk about it and think about it. Um, in terms of future plans, I have a biography of Clement Attlee, who was the British Prime Minister, um, Deputy Prime Minister Churchill during the war and replaced Churchill from after 1945 to 51. Um, lots on the special relationship in that and that comes out in September. Uh, and after that, my kind of big intellectual project is to sort of deep dive like I have done with Realpolitik on the uh, do a deep dive on the concept of world order, which is kind of coming back into fashion again. Of course, it's a it's a phrase that that Henry Kissinger has used, but many other people use it from across the the political spectrum. So I'm going to do a kind of a historical interrogation in the in the same spirit as this book of, of you know where does this idea come from, um, what does it mean, and and uh, is it still sustainable in the rest of the 20th 21st century? Sounds very interesting, and I look forward to that. And once more, thanks for talking with me, and I wish you best of luck in the future. Cheers. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.